Turn with me to John 19, starting in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. If you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 27. We'll read verses 57 through 66, one of the parallel passages to this event. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene was there, as the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty and awesome and holy word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us today. You bring conviction for sin, that you'd grant repentance and faith. Lord, that you would save souls, even in this room today. We ask you to do that by your grace and for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I was given the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to visit with an old friend of mine. I met him shortly after moving to Texas and graduated from Kingwood High School with him and also went to Texas A&M and roomed with him while, while there as well. He moved away to Arizona shortly after graduation and we haven't had much of an opportunity to see each other since then. Well, a couple weeks ago, his dad died from a non-smoking-related lung cancer. The cancer was aggressive, and it resulted in Mr. Anderson dying within a year of being diagnosed with it. He was around 60 years old, 
He was a very fit and strong 60-year-old. He had, back in his college days, he had attended Rice University, and he was on their track team. He actually had the record for the shot put or discus for some period of time while he was competing back then. But he seemed to always kind of maintain that build. He was kind of a tall guy, pretty strong individual, ate pretty healthy. His life was... Uh, from all intents and purposes, on the outside looking, looking at him, he looked as if he was a model of health. And then he gets a dry cough, goes in, and after a couple of tests, they tell him he has lung cancer. He never smoked in his life. He was not in a smoker's home or anything of that nature either. The path chosen for him was involved both radiation and chemo, but the cancer and the cancer treatments took their toll on his body, leaving him very weak and very tired. His last days were spent in wheelchairs and eventually just in a bed. Death is ugly. Death is sad. It's an unwanted intrusion. Death is humbling. Death is humiliating. It's inescapable. It's our just deserve as sinners. The wages of sin is death. It's appointed for man to die once, and then after this, the judgment. Yet man works very, very hard to escape death's cruel grip, but all to no avail. No matter what your power is, what your position, no matter your relative health, what your age, your accomplishments, death is no respecter of any of these things. Death comes upon the young as well as the old. My friend Brandon told me that one of the hardest things going to see his dad was seeing little children with cancer at MD Anderson. Little bald heads going through chemo and radiation at four or five years old. Death is a cruel taskmaster. It doesn't matter what your gender, it doesn't matter what language you speak, your nationality, your career, your social standing... Whether you're wicked or righteous, for that matter, death comes to us all. It hurts to see loved ones and friends die. It's hard to watch those whom we cherish, those whom we love, grow weak and tired and eventually succumb to death. And funerals don't remove death's sting. No amount of nice words on the day of a funeral can bring a loved one back from the dead. No mortician is able to breathe life into a corpse. We attempt to dress death up. We do all we can to make the body that remains look presentable. But no matter what clothing you put on the body, no matter what makeup is applied to the face, no matter what flowers are grouped close by, no matter what casket is prepared, no matter what tombstone is erected. Death is ugly. It is not pretty. And we approach death with solemnity. We attempt to communicate something of dignity for the body that remains, but meanwhile, the spirit has departed. The person is no longer there. Well, last time we were here in our Gospel Harmony together, we remembered Jesus' death on the cross, him giving up his spirit, And there's sometimes a tendency to go right from Jesus' death immediately to his resurrection, skipping over his burial. But Jesus' burial is one of the things that that is listed as of 
first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. And the Apostle Paul says, these are the things I told you of first importance. He says that Christ died according to the Scriptures. Next thing, that he was buried. Then next, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and made many appearances. It's kind of interesting that he died according to the Scriptures, he was buried, and then he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. Do you guys know that also his burial was according to the Scriptures? We're going to see that a little bit this morning. His burial bears further witness to his death, and his death is crucial to our redemption. Jesus must die in the stead of those whom he came to save in order for their penalty to be paid. And then he must rise again for our justification and for our hope. His burial provides further witness to the incarnation, too, because only one who is truly man can die. Only because Jesus is the God-man can he die. For God cannot die. So many details are provided regarding Jesus' burial. And again, we're going to see several specific fulfillments in the events that transpire. And you're going to see this through people that we've never met before and people that we've known for some time. We're reminded through all of these details that God is bringing to pass his perfect sovereign plan. He's even working through, uh, through the unwitting actions of those who hate Jesus. Even those who hate Jesus, which we've seen already before this, but we're going to see it some more this morning. Even those who hate Jesus and despise Jesus, God the Father, Father is utilizing even their sinful actions to bring about his glorious purposes. So this morning we're going to consider the events intervening between Jesus' death and his resurrection in a sermon entitled, Concern and Hope for the Dead. We're going to consider both of these in turn. Points come right from the, from the title. Number one, concern for the dead. And number two, hope for the dead. Concern for the dead and hope for the dead. Let's first of all consider concern for the dead. We see here one of the ways in which concern is shown for the dead is by preparing the dead for burial. There are three men that we need to consider here in the text before us. The first is Joseph of Arimathea. Now here is a man whom we have never met before. His name has never been mentioned in the scriptures before this moment, and he's never mentioned again after this moment. It is a one-time appearance of this man, but the Gospels do a wonderful job between all four of them providing us this glorious portrait of a man in just a few words. We're told quite a bit about him. Matthew 27, 57 says that he was a rich man from Arimathea. In Mark 15, verse 43, we're told that he was a prominent member of the council. Here's a reference to the Sanhedrin. And that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. We're told in Luke 23, 50, that he was a good and righteous man. And that he had not consented to the plan and action of the council. What he's referring to there is what they did with Jesus. He was a conscientious objector to what the council was doing with Jesus. And then we're told in John 19, verse 38, that he was a disciple of Jesus. But then we're given a further descriptor, a disciple, but a secret one. A secret disciple because of his fear of the Jews. Now, there's no no mystery as to what the Jewish leadership thought about Jesus, right? I mean, all these events are unfolding because they hate Jesus. They want to put him to death. Here's a man in the midst of that very council who had not consented to the decision of the council when they 
put him to death. So a secret disciple. That kind of sits weird with us, doesn't it? How can you be a secret disciple? But then it seems like right after that, we see in Matthew 15, 43, having gathered up courage, Joseph came to Pilate. See, although Joseph's discipleship up to this point had been in hiding for fear of the Jews, he now comes to a point of decision regarding what he's going to do with Jesus. His relationship to Jesus cannot merely be non-negative. In other words, he cannot merely just stay in a position where he didn't authorize or agree with the decision that was made with Jesus. Instead, he must make a bold move, a positive action regarding his relationship with Christ. He gathers courage. And he makes his sympathy for Jesus public at a time when such an expression would be extremely dangerous, right? Everyone around him wants Jesus dead. And now he comes forward out of the council to Pilate in one of the most public settings possible to ask for Jesus' body, to render some honor to him in burial. He asks Pilate for Jesus' body. I think this this little... This little vignette, this, this guy coming out of somewhat obscurity is an interesting thing for us to contemplate. It's a reminder to us that the Lord has servants all over the world in sometimes the most obscure or unexpected places. Remember Elijah once fell into the trap of thinking that he alone was left? <laughs> I'm the only one left, O Lord. And the Lord responds to Elijah says, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone in this. I have my own, the Lord says. Sometimes we can feel this way, though, can't we? Sometimes at work we might feel like we're the only Christian. Sometimes maybe you are the only Christian in your particular workplace. Sometimes in the context of church ministry today, and with many churches seeming to even go away from the truth of the Scriptures, sometimes we can feel lonely. Sometimes we might cry out and say, What's happened, O Lord? Where are the witnesses for the genuine gospel? Where are true Christians? Here we see a very unlikely man. And it's also proof that while it is, again, remember the common idea in Jesus' day was that the rich were blessed by God, so those who were blessed by God must be on right terms with God. And Jesus turns out in his head and says that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, pretty much he's saying, it's impossible. A rich man cannot enter the kingdom of heaven as long as he trusts in his riches. But here's a good example of a man. He's a prominent member of the council, and we're also told that he is a rich man. And yet, what? A disciple of Jesus. You see, rich and poor alike have no hope of salvation apart from God's grace. The point is, you can't buy your way into the kingdom. You can't use your riches and wealth to get there. Only grace, God's grace alone can save a man. And here we have a rich man who's been saved by God's glorious grace. I'm sure each of us has afforded opportunities to bear witness to our relationship with Jesus in a variety of settings. Certainly this is one of those. We sing praises unto our great God and King. We join together. We encourage one another. We hug one another. We're excited to be here in the Lord's house together. We, we cherish these moments. Sometimes it can feel very daunting on a Monday morning, though, right? Going out into the rest of the world, encountering people who have no love for Christ. But may we even take Joseph's example here. It's not enough to merely abstain from doing ungodliness. He had abstained from 
being part of the decision that sent Jesus to the cross. But he goes beyond that to shine forward in good deeds his relationship with Jesus. So it must be for us. Not only must we not just merely abstain from joking the way that other people joke or talking about things that other people talk about, but we must be quick to share in the hope that we have in Christ through good deeds and through sharing the gospel with lost souls that they might be saved. Joseph comes to Pilate, Mark fifteen forty four. Pilate wondered if Jesus had already died. And having summoned the centurion, he asked him if he had already died. And having come to know from the centurion that he had, he granted the body to Joseph. The details on all of this is really important. There have been so many various theories put forward to try to undercut Jesus' death and resurrection. One of them is the famous swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just appeared to die on the cross. That he had swooned. (laughs) He had passed out. He had fainted. But there's so many evidences here in the scripture that speak against that. We saw that blood and water flow from Jesus' side after the spear pierces him. And these centurions, who were very much used to death, knew when someone was dead. He comes to Pilate and says, yeah, he's, he's dead. Pilate's surprised that he's dead so quickly, because usually crucifixion lasted much longer. But again, remember, they didn't take Jesus' life. He gave it up. He gave up his spirit willingly. So Pilate orders that Jesus' body be given over to Joseph. Now, this is an interesting providence of God on several levels. First of all, because generally among the Jews, Jewish people would not allow men who were crucified to be laid in graves that were part of the community. They were considered wicked, and they should be buried off away from the just people, typically huddled out of sight, sometimes just bones stacked upon bones in a a grave site away from everything else. The Romans typically would grant bodies of executed criminals, but they would grant them to their next of kin, not to just some mere stranger. And they wouldn't grant bodies of those who were accused of sedition, of treason. What they do with them? They left them on their crosses. They wanted the vultures and wild animals to come and devour the bodies over time, let them putrefy and rot, because they wanted to use it as an example. If you defy Rome, this is what will happen to you. But here we see Pilate giving the body of Jesus over to not a next of kin. It's interesting. God wouldn't allow his son's body to remain there on the cross. A non-relative is granted Jesus' body. Again, I believe it's also proof that Pilate doesn't really actually think that Jesus is guilty of sedition. Remember, Pilate's dragging his feet through the whole thing. He can't find anything wrong with Jesus. He's said it several times within the court proceedings. And I'm sure in this particular case, the Jewish leadership is also fine having Jesus' body taken down because they're concerned that the next day is the Sabbath of the high holy days. They're in the midst of Passover celebration, and tomorrow is the Sabbath. They're probably fine with the bodies being removed. Perhaps the centurion who came to Pilate is the same man who there at the cross said, truly this man was the Son of God. And maybe he relayed some of those details to Pilate also. (laughs) The sky going dark. The tombs cracking open. Maybe Pilate has heard news that the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Supernatural occurrences happening in harmony with Jesus' death. Joseph has granted Jesus' body. 
he goes to Jesus, he takes down his body, he wraps it in a new linen cloth, and he meets up with another man. Now this man is a man that we already know. We read about him here this morning, our scripture readings leading up to this. A man by the name of Nicodemus. John is the one who, who enlightens us to the fact that Nicodemus is part of this funeral procession. Nicodemus comes also. And we're told, the one who came to Jesus first at night. He's, he's referred to that um, here again, that way. That guy who came to visit Jesus at night. John 3, 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. So that guy who came under the cloak of darkness to talk to Jesus, to ask him some questions, the one who was concerned about other people knowing any connection you might have with Jesus, that man has now come to Jesus after he's died. And he's not come with just a small gift, but an exceedingly large one. It's interesting that Nicodemus, now after Jesus has died, would come. We had read all the way through verse 15 in John 3 this morning. I want to draw to your attention those last few verses, starting in verse 12. Listen to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now listen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Could it be that Nicodemus is connecting some dots here? We don't know for sure. But Jesus, one of the things he said specifically to Nicodemus is that the Son of Man, me, will be lifted up, and those who believe in me will have eternal life. Nicodemus has now seen Jesus lifted up. We see added courage from Nicodemus in John 7, the other quick account that we have of him. We're told that the, there was a division among the crowds. The Pharisees want the soldiers to come and seize Jesus. They don't because they're saying there's no one who's ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees say, You're not, you can't actually be led by this guy. You're not being led astray by him, are you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him, has he? It's interesting, it's in this moment that Nicodemus' name comes up. Again, it's not super bold. Again, the scripture given of him in verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? Then they turned to him and said, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search, you'll find that there's no prophet who comes out of Galilee. Nicodemus encounters a little bit of persecution when he asks this question. But now upon Jesus' death, Nicodemus plainly identifies himself with Jesus. Here's an example of a man whose later action is much brighter than his earlier action. Before, Nicodemus came by night. Now he comes before nightfall in order to to honor Jesus, in order to bring a kingly gift, providing an honorable burial for Christ. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, we're told in the text. This would be Roman pounds. It's been likened to something in the order of 65 to 80 American pounds of spice. Nicodemus bringing so much spice is an extravagant gesture, indicating his high esteem for Jesus. It really literally is a kingly gift. It's the sort of thing that would be done for someone who is in high position 
And only people with considerable means would be able to bring that sort of, that amount of spices to, a few, to a, um, internment. As we hear the word myrrh, does it not bring back to our minds the gifts of the wise men? What did they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We've mentioned before, the myrrh is the odd one. It's kind of the odd man out. Yes, it was a precious, a, a precious spice, so you could say it was kingly in that regard. But myrrh is most often associated with death. To bring myrrh to a baby is almost like bringing a casket to a baby shower. I mean, while here we now see again myrrh arising and being brought, a precious spice. It's fascinating that it's now after Jesus' death, when seemingly both Joseph and Nicodemus have nothing to gain by it, that they come boldly into the light as followers of Jesus. Jesus' death made these two men bold. His death made them bold. I wonder what his resurrection did to these men. (laughs) Note, where are Jesus' disciples right now? They're hiding. They're scared. We pick up on them on the next day, or on on Sunday, on resurrection, and what they're doing at that moment. Here's two men. And may I also mention both these men being from the Jewish religious leaders? There's also another sort of sacrifice here. Not only are they identifying themselves as someone that their own leadership and their own group that they're a part of have condemned, but now they're going to come in contact with a dead body during the Feast of Passover right before the Sabbath. These are men who have been trained in cleanliness laws, and certainly among the chief things you would avoid is dead bodies. Coming in contact with a dead body would make you unclean for a period of time. They don't seem to care at all. Here's a matter and a reminder, I think, here with both these men to not despise small beginnings the growth that God brings about in his children, if there is genuine repentance and real faith, a real work of grace done in a man's heart, we can be sure that God will complete the good work he has begun in each of his children. Sometimes it can be disappointing, especially if you've been in a, let's say, a discipleship relationship with someone, you've shared the gospel with them, perhaps somebody you've shared the gospel with has come to know Jesus, and then you've engaged in ongoing discussions with them, and sometimes it can be discouraging because it feels like, Man, we give them like an assignment to read something and they don't, or we're trying to memorize some scripture and they don't, or they, you know, we're talking about this and it's still not the, still the same place that we are. Sometimes it can get very discouraging. Sometimes our patience wanes. I mean, it's wonderful to see examples of this. Here is Nicodemus, who now comes again with his later actions shining much brighter than his earlier ones. J.C. Ryle comments the following way, The life in a helpless infant is as real and true a thing as the life in a full-grown man. The difference is only one of degree. The very Christian who begins his religion with a timid night visit and an ignorant inquiry may stand forward alone one day and confess Christ boldly in the full light of the sun. These two men take the body of Jesus. They bound it in the linen and with the spices, just as the Jewish custom for burial was. Remember, the Jews did not embalm the dead. They did not take out organs and put them in pots or anything like that. They used fragrant spices in these wrappings to try to push off the putrefaction smell, to push off that smell, to try to overpower the smell for as long as possible. Again, death is ugly. 
and our attempts to beautify the dead are ultimately futile. We may attempt to put new garments on the dead. We might add spices to cover death's stench. We may attempt to push off corruption, but it's all a losing battle. These spices and perfumes were futile attempts to put off corruption. But the good news is that God the Father would not allow his son to see corruption. We next see laying the dead to rest. They come to an unused tomb. In the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, there was a new tomb. It was hewn out of the rock, which no one had yet been laid in. It's an interesting parallel that at the beginning of the Bible, we see that when the first Adam would sin, he sinned in a garden. And he would bring death to all who were in him. While the second Adam, Jesus, would die and be buried in a garden in order to rise again and bring life to those who are in him. Fulfillments of prophecy abound here. Since it was the Jewish day of preparation, Luke 23, 54, the Sabbath was about to begin. So the Sabbath is almost to happen. The day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. They get everything ready before the Sabbath because you couldn't work on the Sabbath. So this is the day of preparation. The Sabbath is about to begin You have to understand Jewish recollection, how they would count days. Days began at evening. So the Sabbath for them began at sundown. So here we are on Good Friday, the day before the Sabbath, Saturday. And so this all has to happen from Jesus' death to his being put in the grave. It has to happen before something like 6 p.m. Deuteronomy 21-23 commands that a corpse be buried on the day of death and not be left hanging These time constraints would have been intensified by the soon approaching Sabbath, beginning at sundown. The timings of Jesus' internment is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because Jesus said, I'll be in the ground for three days. Well, this gives him a part of all three days. Friday, he's in the grave before it turns Saturday. He's in the grave Saturday, and then he rises on the third day on that following Sunday. We're told that this was a new tomb. And Matthew 27, 60 tells us that it was his own tomb, speaking about Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Matthew also makes the point that this man was rich. So he's a rich, prominent member of the Sanhedrin. And just even the fact that it's hewn out of a rock, having a rock tomb was itself a huge expense. We know this guy has some wealth. It was his own tomb, meaning probably Joseph was making this for himself. And he comes to this moment... And they have to do it quickly. And so he places Jesus in his own tomb. This is itself a unique fulfillment of prophecy. Again, Isaiah 53, a a chapter and book of the Bible that we're very familiar with because of just how startling it pushes forward Jesus' suffering upon the cross. But in Isaiah 53, verse 9, we see, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Matthew includes these details that we would see that connection. Here is the rich man, and not only that, but he's laid in a rich man's grave. There can be no mistaking which tomb this was either. It was a brand new one. It wouldn't be confused with other tombs, and there'd be no confusion when that tomb was vacated. There'd be no confusion as to what happened inside of there, because there weren't other bodies. There was only one. There was only one. There could be no mix-ups here. We all realize that Joseph was merely just loaning his uh, tomb to Jesus because Jesus wouldn't need it for very long. He would soon vacate it. 
There are two witnesses watching. We're told Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, uh, are following, and they watch to see where, what would become of Jesus' body. They watch to see where Jesus' body is placed. Again, an important detail, because it is these women who will be the ones who see, are the first to find out the news that Jesus has risen from the dead. Another of these theories is, well, maybe they mixed up the tombs. You know, they went to another tomb and it was the wrong one. These ladies watched Jesus be put inside of it, and the stone rolled there. There are eyewitnesses to watching Jesus' body go in, and there are eyewitnesses to seeing that his body was gone. And the stone was rolled away. These compassionate women would be the very ones who would be the first to encounter the good news of Jesus' resurrection. There could be no mistaking which tomb Jesus was put in. It's the brand new one hewn out of rock, with a rock rolled in front of it. The details are plain. Jesus will be put into the tomb. And through Saturday, or the Sabbath, his body will rest. It's interesting that we come to the Sabbath right here and right now. Remember, the Sabbath began because uh, God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh. We know that technically God never sleeps nor slumbers. Should he, for even one moment, stop working, everything would cease to be. God not only creates, but he sustains and upholds everything by the word of his power. But God does rest from his creative work on the seventh day. He completes all of his work of creation in six days, and he rests on the seventh. Now, the Jews are commanded to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Sabbath rest is promised to God's people in the form of living in God's land There's a rest promised to God's people going into God's land, the promised land, living under his rule, enjoying his presence, enjoying his blessing. Yet with all of those pictures of rest, we're told in Hebrews, there's a rest that still remained. It still wasn't the rest that God ultimately had for his people. Now we use the acronym today, RIP, rest in peace, to speak of final rest happening upon death. The time when earthly struggle is swallowed up in the eternal hereafter. Yet the question I have to ask is, is death the rest that we're really longing for? Death is an ugly intrusion into God's beautiful creation. It's the painful consequence of sin and rebellion. It doesn't bring with it rest that our souls long for. But sadly today, many people believe that if you just die, you'll you'll enter into a better place. Dying is just a place of rest and peace and relaxation. R.C. Sproul calls this pervasive belief justification by death. That everyone must go to heaven when he or she dies, except perhaps the most rank evildoers. You know, for some reason, we, we keep Hitler out of that. But everybody else, you know, if you die, just everyone goes to a place of peace and prosperity and comfort. Many funerals are led by people who promulgate this idea. It probably derives from a couple of failures. I know Sproul points out at least two of them. One is that we fail to present a biblical picture of God today. If all people ever hear is that God is unconditionally loves everyone, if that's all they ever hear, then they have no category for understanding how God is a God who is holy and righteous and just. God full of righteous indignation. And as a result then, it gives people no way to have any category for something else the Bible is very plain about, and Jesus himself was very plain about, and that is hell. 
eternal punishment. You see, man is appointed to die once, but after this, the judgment. And if you're not in Christ, you will see the fury of God's wrath poured out upon you. It is not loving to tell people there is no hell when there is one. It's a lie. It causes people to think that it doesn't matter. J.C. Ryle says it so well. Let us take care that we do not regard a sumptuous funeral as an atonement for a life wasted in carelessness and sin. We may bury a man in the most expensive style and spend hundreds of pounds in mourning. We may place over his grave a costly marble stone and inscribe on it a flattering epitaph. But all this will not save our souls or his. The turning point at the last day will not be in how we were buried, but whether we were buried with Christ and repented and believed. Romans 6, 4. The good news is that death does usher those who trust in Jesus into a place of true and lasting and eternal rest with him. But that's only possible not because you're justified by death, but because you've been justified through faith in Christ alone. You see, Jesus dies on Friday, a day we remember as good because what man meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring about the present result that many would be saved. His body rests in the grave on Saturday, the Sabbath, the day of rest, and then he rises again on Sunday, the first day of the week. As God began his creative work on the first day, so Jesus, God's Son, would rise again on the first day of the week, a day that Christians now celebrate down through the ages as the Lord's Day. The reason why we gather on Sunday together, our meeting day is this day because we remember our wonderful Savior, our wonderful, merciful Savior, rose again. And in his glorious triumph over the grave, he accomplished redemption and a new creation has begun. A new creation, just as God created on the first day. There's now a new creation on Sunday ultimately culminating in Jesus' glorious return in the new heavens and the new earth one day. The third care that they show is that they guard the dead from disturbance. Joseph and Nicodemus roll a stone over the entrance of the tomb. This is typically to keep animals out, to prevent them from devouring the body. But not, they're not the only ones concerned about anything going into the tomb. It's at this point that Matthew tells us that the scribes, uh, I'm sorry, the chief priests and Pharisees are concerned about Jesus' body. It's on the Sabbath that they become very concerned about Jesus' body. Now remember, these are the very ones who blackmailed Pilate to get Jesus put to death. They now return to Pilate and ask that he do them a further favor. Remember, I also had already asked them to break their legs to hasten their death. But now again they appear before Pilate, this time with a concern that Jesus' tomb not be left unattended. And this is all happening on the Sabbath. I mention that to just say, do you see the hypocrisy again? These are the very men who wanted to kill and destroy Jesus because he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus says, you want, me to put, you want to put me to death for doing a good deed to this man? These are the same individuals that are ready to destroy Jesus for healing a man's withered hand. And on the Sabbath, they're plotting against Jesus with Pilate. They want to put a guard up in front of him. They say, they call Jesus here the deceiver. How blind these men are. 
They're so blind that they call Jesus blind. They call the one who is the way, the truth, and life a deceiver. This is how Satan operates. He calls light darkness. He calls truth a lie. He calls good evil. Those are the tools of his nefarious trade. They remember that Jesus had prophesied, after three days I will rise again. And they want to ensure that Jesus' disciples do not steal Jesus' body. They're concerned that this second deception, this latter deception, will be worse than the first. They said, hey, Pilate, Jesus already had a following then, but think about what following he'd have if the disciples stole his body and told people that he had risen from the dead, as he had said that he would. Again, where are the disciples right now? They're huddled away. They're scared. They're sad. Yet these same men are the ones that will be imbued with power. They'll speak in ways that will leave people shaking their heads, scratching their heads. This ragtag group of men, after Jesus does appear to them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, will, by God's grace, turn the world upside down. But at this point, they're not thinking anything about Jesus' prophecies this way. They had no interest in robbing a tomb. These are very men who will eventually, almost all of them will be martyred for their faith. They'll die for this testimony. Another thing that's pointed out often, if Jesus hadn't actually risen from the dead, why would these men lay down their life for a lie? You might do a lot for a lie, but will you die for a lie that you know is a lie? Pharisees and chief priests are concerned that Jesus' body stay in the ground. This isn't merely their desires, but the or the desires of flesh and blood. I'm sure Satan was longing for the same thing. So we get an indication that it's not the disciples alone who are frightened, though. The Pharisees and the chief priests are frightened as well. They're concerned. Their fear was probably intensified by all these events that they just saw happen around Jesus' crucifixion. But I do find it interesting and ironic that at a time and place where the disciples were not contemplating those words from Jesus, Jesus' enemies were. Remember he talked about rising again on the third day? We've got to make sure that no one perpetrates some sort of mock resurrection. So Pilate says to him, you have a guard? Depart, secure, do it as you know how. Either Pilate's saying, here, you already have men, do it, make it happen. Or he's saying, here, have a guard, go, secure the the grave however you think it needs to be secured. Perhaps it was a detachment of both Roman and Jewish security forces that are present on hand. But all these precautions will do ultimately is provide further witness to the miracle that's about to transpire. Now, while Joseph and Pilate and Nicodemus and the two Marys and the Jewish leadership are all concerned regarding Jesus' dead body and having different concerns, obviously, it's actually Jesus' concern for the dead that takes center stage. Jesus really cares. So much so that he was willing to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to fulfill all righteousness, to willingly suffer and then die and be buried for those who are dead, so that there might also be not only concern for the dead, but point number two, hope for the dead. I can say this quite quickly. They roll a large stone over the entrance of the tomb, Joseph and Nicodemus do, and they go away. But not only is the grave protected by a stone, but now a guard is set up. And the priests and Pharisees come when they set up the guard, and they put a seal on the stone as well. The seal would give an indication if anyone had, even in the slightest way, disturbed the grave. They want to make sure that a body snatching couldn't happen unnoticed or undetected. 
Their concern is to expose any sort of mock resurrection. But what's so glorious about it is that their precautions prove the fact that it wasn't a mock resurrection. That everything they did to say, hey, it wasn't somebody stealing his body. That's what we're concerned about. Don't let that ever be the way that this goes down. The precautions of the enemies of the cross would end up garnering further evidence of the truth of Jesus' real and genuine resurrection. They successfully thwart any pretended resurrection from being accomplished and promulgated. And therefore, they serve eyewitnesses to the real resurrection. This is where we see not only the seal of death, but the death of death. Well, we come to the end of our text this morning. I just can't leave it there. (laughs) Come back next week and we'll talk about what happens. Certainly, we'll consider the details of what happens in coming weeks, but we must at least say this. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And while the Jewish leaders may have been successful in keeping anyone from going in, they cannot keep Jesus from coming out. He had the power to lay down his life, and he had the power to take up his life again. Jesus alone can not only break the seal on that stone, but break the seal of death. He could do away with the sting of death. He could conquer death by conquering sin and death. Philip Ryken says, Sinners believing in Jesus may hope and not be afraid. In themselves they're guilty, but Christ has died for the ungodly, and their debt is now completely paid. Death is ugly, but it doesn't have the final say. My friend's dad knew Jesus He had repented of his sin. He had placed his faith in Christ at the funeral, talked often about his favorite thing. He had gone on several mission trips, and there was a particular people group in Africa that he really, really just had a heart for. He had learned how to share the gospel through telling the story of creation all the way through redemption. He'd actually go into tribal settings, there'd be a translator, and he would tell the story, starting in Genesis, and he would go right up to talking about Jesus and and, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. He loved doing that. He had a career, he had a family to watch over, but he knew that his chief identity was the fact that he was Christ's. He was God's son. He had been given forgiveness of his sins. He had been granted eternal life. And while Mr. Anderson would succumb to death, because he was a Christian, he could look past death and know that a glorious future awaited him. So the question to all of us today is, Where are you in relationship with the Lord? Where are you in relationship with Jesus? Have you been trusting that death will justify you? Will you see the lie of that? If you wait until you're dead, it's too late. The only hope that a man has to be saved from death is to repent of his sin and believe in him who conquered death and sin. To believe in Jesus And if you will, then you too can have fellowship not only in Jesus' sufferings, but you can also fellowship in his glorious resurrection. No matter what we try to do to care for, for the dead, our care can only go so far, right? Our care for the dying and the dead only goes so far. As long as they're here with us, we try to do everything we can to comfort those who are about to die. But we can't go any further than that. Once they're dead, they're dead, and there's nothing we can provide to them. Human care can only go so far, and it can only do so much. But Jesus' care is both here and beyond the grave. 
And His power is unlimited. You see, if you don't have Jesus, then all that you ultimately have is hopelessness. And death is the most humiliating, most hopeless thing to imagine, that you could even imagine. But because of Jesus, and in Jesus, death is swallowed up in victory. Its sting is removed. If you come to Jesus, you can have eternal life. Eternal life starts now, and it's never lost, because it's eternal. He proved his love, and he proved his care by dying for sinners. And it is his death and his burial and then his resurrection that gives the dead hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to contemplate the glorious work of your son Jesus. Not only his death, but his burial for the fulfillment of so many prophecies and then for the indication of the glorious coming resurrection morning. I pray that in this place, if there are, is anyone who's been deceived thinking that they'll just be justified by dying, that dying will just usher them into heaven, that you would convict them of the lie that that is. I pray that the solemnity of this would really weigh heavy upon them. It's good for a man to contemplate death. Far too often we put thoughts of it too far away. And too many people wait too long before dealing with you. Lord, I pray that you grant them eyes to see. They would see the, just not the hopelessness of death without Jesus, but they would see the beauty of Jesus and the hope that they can have in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.